I'm not up here because I'm the most clever communicator or necessarily even the most effective. I am up here with the task of making God's word known. But I want you to know that I stand with you as somebody who needs to hear God's word. I'm not, in a sense, the voice from God, right? It's the Bible, that's his word, and we together stand under it. And so as we dig into God's word, I try my best to bring it to you faithfully and to bring it to my own heart faithfully. But this is collective work we do. If you're dependent on all my ability and skill to find just the right thing and draw it to you, uh, you won't grow like God intends. This is collective work as we look to God's word, pray in light of it, study it together, and open our hearts to his spirit to allow him to be transforming us, which I am doing, and by God's grace, we all can do. We are moving through the book of Matthew, and we're in chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, which if you're using this Bible in the pew rack, it's on page 809, page 809. Because this is God's word, let's stand for the reading of it. Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please be seated as we pray. Father, I know that I need to hear these words today, and I think we all do. So open our ears. Speak to us today. In Christ's name, amen. 
Ernest Snood was a Christian of the first order. That is to say, he was a Baptist. He had his theology right and was justifiably incensed, so he thought, with those who didn't. Like many of his ilk, he maintained the uncanny ability to look down his nose at those around him while still projecting an air of humility. As with any good Christian, he was quick to criticize the ineptitude of the political establishment, particularly if they were of the opposition. And to be honest, Mr. Snood was always honest, he was sometimes equally critical of the leaders in his church, except for those times when he himself was one of the leaders. He was the confident type, self-assured, able to get things done, he implicitly trusted his own sound judgment and was grateful for his moral compass, that it was not kinked like those of so many around him. Ernest Snood was not without his flaws. Those who worked closely with him found him prickly. He had one or two closet sins, which he kept well hidden. But those flaws simply served to remind Mr. Snood that he wasn't that much better than everyone else. I think Jesus has something to say to Ernest Snood. I think Jesus has something to say about what it means to be a Christian. Does Ernest Snood sound familiar to you? Perhaps for some of us, he sounds a bit too much like ourselves. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say about what it means to be one of his followers, about what citizens of his kingdom look like. So let me just remind you of the situation in which our passage today was given. Just in chapter 4, Jesus had begun his ministry. He had just started. And already because of the healing he was doing, because of um, his authority when he spoke, people were coming to him in mass. He was kind of a, a rock star of that day. Everywhere he went, people were flocking to him. And, and this, this guy who, who was just a son of a carpenter, now had people abandoning their livelihood to follow him and devote themselves to him as their rabbi. And so, with, with, the, with the throngs gathering to him to, because he was healing and he was casting out demons, and, and this, this crowd of people are saying, we are your disciples, we are your followers, Jesus knew what he needed to do. He retreats up the mountain away from the crowds, and he sits down. And his disciples realize he's going to be saying something. So his disciples, and not all the crowds, gather around him. And Jesus begins to give some astounding teaching. It's, it's going to take the next three chapters of the book of Matthew. It's the, it's, the longest, uh, it's the longest recorded sermon of Jesus that we have, the Sermon on the Mount. But he begins with what's often called the Beatitudes. That's just because the Latin for blessed or happy is, is Beatitude. So we just use the Latin, I guess. But 
in these opening statements, as one commentator said, the power of these statements lies in their reversal of all human values. You see, Jesus realizes with all this this, uh, acclaim and, and power and prestige that's coming to him, he needs to teach his disciples about some things that are really important. What he really values in his kingdom. What's truly blessed in his kingdom. And you'll see that what Jesus is doing is he is actually reprogramming his disciples. It's like spiritual detox. He's systematically dismantling the worldly values and instilling kingdom values. And he's doing so, and this is important to see, because his kingdom is altogether different from the world's. Jesus' kingdom is peculiar, it's distinct, it's alien. It's this new foreign thing that's bursting onto the scenes of the world. And so what Jesus is doing in these beatitudes, these blesseds, is he's laying out this is what should mark a citizen of my kingdom. Right? So Americans were known for our brashness. Canadians are known for their niceness. Is that a word? Jesus is saying that those in his kingdom should be known for being poor in spirit, for mourning, for being meek, for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for being merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and even for being persecuted. See how it just turns worldly values on their head? And Jesus' point in these Beatitudes is unmistakable. These are the collective traits of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. So that's how the first Beatitude begins. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven in verse 2. And it's how the last Beatitude in verse 10 ends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the collective traits of those who belong to the kingdom of God. And we see that repeated then throughout, right? So we see it there in verse uh, 5. They shall inherit the earth. We see it in verse 7. For they shall receive mercy. We see it in verse 8. For they shall see God. Verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. All these are kind of conveying the same idea, right? These are those who are true believers. We could say, in a sense, blessed are the true Christians. These are the marks, the hallmarks of those who belong to God's kingdom. And so, we need to take note. We need to pay close attention because I think... It wasn't just the disciples who needed the spiritual detox. I think today, with all the different ideas and messages we're given about what it means to be a Christian, about what is blessed, what should be valued, what's important, I think we need the spiritual detox as well. Now, these Beatitudes fall into two main sections. The first section, the first four Beatitudes talk about a heart posture. 
That's what's going on inside of us that, that, that shapes who we are. And then, and then the, the next three after that talk about kind of the outworking of that heart posture. So let's begin by looking at the posture of the heart. It begins in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the word there for poor means one who is, is so poor they're dependent on others. For, for just getting what they need. In fact, I, I heard this translator once as beggarly poor, which is exactly right. But of course, this isn't talking about financial poverty. This is talking about poverty of spirit or spiritual poverty. This is an x-ray of a true Christian. You could say... In a sense, the summary of this is not the Beatitudes, but blessed are the born again. And where it begins for us to be true believers is this poverty of spirit. Where we say, I've spent every penny I have trying to buy my righteousness and buy my favor and good standing with God. And I realize that I have come to the end of my means. I have not gained righteousness for myself. I have not gained favor with God. And I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing. I come as a beggar to God saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we have not reached that point, we're not born again. There's an old hymn writer named Gadsby. And he wrote these words. A beggar poor at mercy's door lies such a wretch as I. Thou knowest my need is great indeed. Lord, hear me when I cry. With guilt beset and deep in debt. For pardon, Lord, I pray. Oh, let thy love sufficient prove to take my sins away. Every one of us in this room is alike a beggar. There's some of us who don't realize that. Maybe we've grasped it at one point. We're true believers. We really have reached that point at some point. But maybe because we've been a Christian for some time, we've started to believe that that's not who we are. That we actually have something in our hand that we bring. There's others in this room who understand in a very keen way that they are beggars at God's door. And perhaps if that's you, you feel like there's something wrong with you. You feel like, is this really where I should be? I don't have anything. But I want to say to you, You are right where you should be. In fact, you're ahead of the rest of us. Because that, that is the mark, poor in spirit, of those to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to, to further describe the posture of the heart. 
of who's th- those who are born again. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, when you look biblically at this idea of mourning, it's not just in the narrow sense of uh, grieving over the death of a loved one. What it's talking about is this deep and profound sadness over the brokenness that is in this world and the brokenness that's in our own heart. So you think of Jesus mourning over Jerusalem because he sees them weighed down by their sins, and that's the kind of mourning here described. If you've been uh, listening to me for very long, you know that I'm a fan of Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash always wore black, right? The man in black. And he has a song that describes why he always wore black. Includes this part of the explanation. He says, I wear it for the sick and lonely old, for the reckless ones whose bad trip left them cold, I wear the black in mourning for the lives that could have been. Each week we lose a hundred fine young men. And I wear it for the thousands who have died believing that the Lord was on their side. He was a mourner. We need to be people who not only realize our poverty of spirit, but realize the blackness of the reign of sin and death. And we grieve over the state of this world. And then it says, for they shall be comforted. Because Jesus does come and he does something about the brokenness of this world. And for those who see the weight and darkness of this world and mourn over that, there will come a time when Christ returns and is done away with. It's all swallowed up and thrown into the sea of fire. And we get to enjoy all of this world without any of the brokenness. And we receive the truest comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The third aspect of the posture of our heart that we should have is the meek. Now this is an overflow of that poverty of spirit. See, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not to be confused with having a passive personality. Meekness is the ability to be kind and gentle in the face of opposition. And we're able to do that because our confidence is in God and not in ourselves. So we're so dependent on God and fixated on Him that when the hard circumstances come and the opposition comes, we're able to continue on gentle and kind or or meek in the face of that. That's what meekness is. And so it's an overflow of poverty of spirit, like I said, because when we realize our bankruptcy, that we're beggars, and then God, and we experience again, God reaching into us, our hearts with his love and redeeming us and making us his own children. We don't fix our eyes on ourselves and our ability to handle the injustice that we're facing because we already know our bankruptcy. And so we look to God and cling to him through it. 
and allows us to have this meekness in the face of it all. Do you see how this heart posture is really just a heart that's been gripped by the gospel? I realize I'm a broken sinner. I realize I don't have anything. And I realize what God has done for me and for the brokenness of this world. And so I mourn over the brokenness of this world. And I look to God and I'm able to endure with gentleness and meekness. And of course, those who are meek, their confidence is in God. Those who are not meek try and face the injustice or the opposition themselves in their own strength. And at the end of the day... If you haven't read the whole Bible, or if you haven't heard, God wins, not the city of man. And so those who are meek and are entrusting themselves to God and enduring as a result actually are on the side of the victor at the end and inherit the earth. And those who are not, where their confidence is in themselves and their own ability to, in their own strength to handle whatever's coming, they end up on the losing side. The last heart posture we see is is in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think there's uh, two errors that that Christians are prone to fall into. And and the Beatitudes kind of give the balance to the two. So on the one side, you have people who are inclined towards piety without poverty that means they're very focused on uh, righteousness and living a righteous and holy life but they don't really grasp their own poverty of spirit they don't realize how broken they are the other error is people who have poverty without piety so they talk about oh I am a sinner. It's so good that I'm under grace. There's no hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And do you see how with a, with a person who's truly born again, with these beatitudes, we see both of these things come together. If you have been drinking filthy, polluted water, it's making you sick, Sometimes you, you think, I'm, I'm, I'm really thirsty, but I'm not even going to drink it because it's so bad. Then somebody comes and puts a well in. It goes all the way down to the deep parts of the earth and draws out clean water. You long for that water. Because you know the crud you've been drinking from. Somebody who realizes the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of their own heart and sees the goodness of what Christ brings when he delivers us from our sin and forgives us and redeems us from the kingdom of this world. Somebody who gets that knows, hey, I've been drinking the crud. That's not what I want anymore. I long for the good water. It's not like, hey, great, he forgave me so I can keep drinking the cruddy water. No, we turn and we say, I long for that pure, clean water. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I love that language because it's not just, hey, I want this kind of exterior righteousness that, you know, I look good for. No, it's something, a deep longing within me. This is good. This is right. This is what I desire in my deepest soul because a heart that has been changed by the gospel sees the crud for what it is and the goodness of what God offers and desires that. And it says, I love it, it says they will be satisfied. Or you could, uh, you could expand that translation, they will eat till they're full. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell the person whose heart's been changed by the gospel. And it begins to transform us so that we grow more and more righteous. It doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become perfect, far from it. But we become more and more righteous until, until Christ returns or until we die. And at that point, we become truly satisfied for what we are longed for. We become righteous. We get that for which we long. So that's the first four of the Beatitudes that really speak to the posture of the heart. And again, I just want to underscore this posture of the heart is, is the posture of a heart that has been gripped and changed by the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be 100% at poverty of spirit, 100% at meekness or whatever, you know. Yes, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a spectrum here. But at some point, we have to have grasped that we are nothing and put our trust in God so that we can be meek and be broken and mourn over the fallenness of this world and delight in the goodness and righteousness that he offers. That has to be our heart. We who have been changed by the gospel. That heart posture then leads to certain actions. And the next three Beatitudes get into those actions. It's a sense like uh, those, those heart postures will bear themselves out or work themselves out in a certain way. It's like if you've been, if you have a, if you're a computer program, you've encoded a certain way, there's a certain user interface that will come with that. There's a certain way the program works as a result of that coding. And someone who's been coded with the gospel does live a certain way. And the first way we live is in verse 7, we're merciful. This refers to a tender understanding of the real needs around you. And then taking action to meet those needs. I don't want us to think that we're merciful because we put a few dollars or even more in the little red bucket at Christmas time. Or even that we're merciful because we put a shoebox together. Or we support some sponsor a child in some stricken part of the world. Though I think those are things that merciful people will do. Here's the question we need to ask. Am I aware of the deep hurts and struggles of at least a few of the people who are my neighbors. People who live on my street or in my apartment building. 
And am I doing something to help meet those needs or alleviate that pain? Could I say, at least for one of my coworkers, that I'm tuned in to the weight they carry and I'm actually taking steps to help them with that weight? Because that is what it means to be merciful. The people, flesh and blood around you that you see that are near to you, who all of us are carrying weight, are you walking with them? And you see how this flows out of that heart posture because if you realize the mercy that God has given us, right? I am somebody who doesn't, I'm, I was a rebel against God. I was a, deserving of his wrath. And I came to him and said, I don't have anything to bring. I'm just begging for your mercy. And what did God do because of Christ? He gave us his mercy. He forgave us. In our desperate state, he ministered to us and carried our burdens, put them on his son Christ. People who really grasp that in their heart, in their coding, will be people who are merciful. That's just the natural outworking of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. It says... Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next it says, blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. Now this is an outworking of having a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because, uh, remember I talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's a deep, desire deep within us right so there are people who without pure hearts kind of desire some sort of outward piety right but but that's mainly because they want to look righteous in a certain way and deep deep in the deepest parts of their heart they actually hold on to and treasure certain sins that we don't want to let go of and so then we have to give our energies to kind of um, trying to look righteous and trying to look the part and really masking what's really in our heart. And that leads to a not pure heart, a double-tonguedness, a, a, you know, a double-mindedness, a duplicity of heart. But when we realize, look, I'm a beggar. I'm coming to God broken and needy. And I'm longing in my deepest parts for his righteousness. Then I can walk in full disclosure of the sin that's in my life, because I'm repenting of it and God's working in me and we're all alike growing together. And then the righteousness that God is instilling in me is part, it comes from really where my heart is, a longing for that righteousness. It's something that people can sense. There's something beautiful to it. There's a simplicity to it. This is a man who just is who he is, a child of God, broken and depending on Christ. There's that uh, chapter in Alice in Wonderland where they have planted the wrong roses, right? They were supposed to plant red roses and they painted, planted white roses. 
and the queen is coming and she's going to have their heads. And so they are painting the roses red, right? I think a lot of us are like that, right? There's something wrong in our nature at our core. Jesus is coming or the church Sunday is coming or whatever. And so I got to go paint my roses red. But instead, those who are pure in heart say, take my white rose, Jesus. It's not what you want. And replant within me. You can change the very nature of my rose and make it a red rose. I don't have to paint it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then the last outworking of this heart posture is blessed are those who are peacemakers. Peacemakers. You see how a true Christian is somebody, if you get it, if that's really your heart, if you have a born-again heart, it bears itself out, and, and you will be a peacemaker. Let me show you just kind of how this works. So if I am grieved over the brokenness of this world, and I'm weighed down by just the weight that is upon this world in my own heart that I share with everybody else, then when I'm driving down the street and some jerk cuts me off, I think about the weight that is on him, the weight that is on this world, even I see my own heart reaction, and I'm weighed by that, and I mourn for the brokenness of this world instead of rising up with anger, right? Or if in my meekness I've learned not to trust myself to handle the injustice, but to look to God and proceed gently and lovingly through it, then when the injustice happens, I don't feel like I need to be the one that the most important thing in all the world is for my rights to be established and I need to stand up for me. If, if I don't stand up for me, nobody else is going to. No. Yeah, I'm not saying that you never take any action, but you're entrusting yourself to God and you're looking to Him. That's the posture of your heart, meekness. Or if you have a merciful heart, right? And so you see the pain that is around you. And when you see that pain, you want to actually minister to it. Then when that waitress does such a bad job at your table and is short with you, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to take it out on her, blah, blah, blah. You think, what's going on in her heart? How can I be a blessing to her? How can I minister to that need? You're a peacemaker, right? It's just who we are as believers when the gospel is shaping us. Now, again, I just want to say with all of this, I, I'm talking about blessed are the born again. I'm saying this is who belongs in God's kingdom. These are traits of God's people because they're the ones who've been changed by the gospel. I'm not saying you have to be perfect in every one of those areas, nor do I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you don't get to taste heaven unless you're, you've got all of this exactly right. 
He's saying, this is what marks my people, and it ought to mark us. These traits ought to define us, albeit imperfectly, because we understand our poverty, we understand our need, we're mourning over our own brokenness, right? So it's not like, hey, I've got it all, I've got it all figured out, good, I'm always the most you know, gentle person in the room. No, I'm being transformed by this gospel, it's continuing its work on me. I'm continuing to grasp its implications. So it's important we understand I'm not saying if you don't live a perfect life, you're not really part of the kingdom of God. But I, I do think Jesus is saying, or I don't think, I think it's fairly plain that what Jesus is saying is these are the traits, these are the marks collectively of his people. Now, if you, if you put all these traits together, they're actually quite endearing, I think, even to a world where they challenge all the values of the world. There's something attractive about them. But Jesus adds an eighth beatitude, an eighth blessing that might seem a little surprising. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, as, as Jesus' popularity is peaking and everything's going well and he gathers them, he, his disciples, he draws them out into the mountain, sits down, he's talking to his disciples. He has something very specific he wants to say to them. He says, look, if you're here because you think this is the ride to the top of the roller coaster, you're wrong. Look how they treated the prophets. And by implication, look how they will treat me. Those who stand for Christ will be persecuted because... What we're doing, what Jesus is doing is establishing an entirely new kind of kingdom, a new values. And those, although those are beautiful things that there's something deep in the heart of every human being that says that's right and good, nonetheless, that light shines and they say, oh, that's not me. And there's rejection that comes with that. So I think of uh, a teen, being a teenager, I always have liked to sleep in. It's still true of me to this day, but high schoolers get an extra dose of that, right? And so I'd be sleeping in, and it would be time to get up for whatever reason, and my mom would come and throw open the curtains, right, so the bright light would shine in the room. And did I like the light? No. Close the curtains. I put my head under the pillow, pull the covers up, do anything I could to avoid the light, even though the light was a good thing. And everyone understands that light is a good thing. And there's something that once you're awake and with it, you see light as a good thing, but... There in the darkness, I loved my darkness, and I didn't want the light. And so those who are like this, who are God's children, will be persecuted. And Jesus then repeats the same teaching in verse 11. But now he says, you, and he turns and points the fingers like he wants to draw attention to this. And the kind of persecution that he talks about isn't beatings. It's not imprisonments or, or beheadings, though I think those would fall under the category of persecution. But do you see in verse 11 what he talks about? Reviling, uttering evil against you. It's words. The kind of persecution that I think we see all the time in North America where there aren't beheadings and beatings. In fact, I'd say any place where there is 
a, a group of unbelievers that you are connected with, when you are growing in Christ and becoming more Christ-like, you will be the recipient of some of that reviling, some of that speaking ill against you falsely, whether that's a family of unbelievers, whether that's a group of friends who've been your friends for a long time, whether that's co-workers, guys on your sports team. If you're not sensing some of that reviling, some of that uttering, maybe you're not living the way Christ has called us to live. So, in verse 11, he turns to focus on them. He says, you, and he continues talking to them in verses 13 through 16. He says, you should expect persecution, right? But he also says that this kind of distinctiveness inevitably attracts people to glorify God. There's something about the way we live that is attractive like salt in food or like light in darkness. Now, I make a, uh, we have movie night occasionally at our home, and I make dad's special popcorn. I take air popped popcorn, which tastes like nothing, and I douse it in oil, sugar, and salt, and then it tastes wonderful. That salt is a key ingredient with all that. There's something about putting salt in food that makes it taste good. And God's saying, there's a way of living our lives here as citizens of his kingdom that's salty. It tastes good. In fact, you eat it, you want more of it, right? Or he talks about this light. You know, you go, go out camping way to northern Ontario, way away from, you know, any nearby town. It's a dark night, no moon, maybe it's overcast. And you go to get your flashlight out because you need to go somewhere and you click it on and it doesn't come on. That's, I feel, what we as Christians are like all the time or too often. This world is in darkness. And God has called us to be the light. And yet we're just like the world. Click it on and there's just more darkness. Back then before they had electricity, before you could just flip a switch and have light, the only light you had was that candle you kept burning or that oil you kept going, costly, you didn't put a cloak over it. You didn't cover it. Because that light's so valuable in the darkness. We live in a dark world. We mourn for the dark world we live in. We, in this room, are called to be the salt. We're called to be the light. And the way we're able to do that is as we live out these Beatitudes, as we're people who are truly born again, whose hearts have been changed by the gospel.
Nehemiah Grace was aptly named, she embodied grace. You never saw her clamoring for physician or to be heard. Instead, she was always on the lookout for someone who needed care or encouragement. Her heart and hands were always enmeshed in at least a dozen lives weighed down by the despair of this world. Her grace did not leave her without conviction. Indeed, it seemed to flow out of her conviction. She was quick to speak of her Savior and to share the good news, but her words were so obviously flowing from a heart of love, love for her Savior and for the one to whom she spoke. Those she served felt her a kindred soul. They sensed she bore the same scars as them, yet had a life that gave her hope. Yet if you called Maya a saint, she'd be quick to respond, I have a long way to go. And you could tell that she genuinely meant it. Ernest Snood and Maya Grace. To which does Jesus say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? And which are you? Let's pray. Father, it's my heart. I don't, I don't want everyone leaving this room thinking, man, I've got to work harder and do better. I've got to paint the roses red a little bit more. I want us leaving this room, people who are gripped by the gospel, whose hearts are changed because we beggars have been shown mercy in Christ. And living these, these blesseds of your kingdom. Help me, Lord, help us to be these kind of people in our neighborhood, in our workplace, so that people may see our good works and give glory to you.